It's a good prayer for us, isn't it? Oh, Lord, remember us. All right, open your Bibles, again, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2, the passage Brother Gary just read for us. I have a subject this morning that I love to preach about and I love to think about, the kingship of Christ. I've titled the message, Christ Exalted. I love to think about Christ our Savior, exalted. The Lord Jesus Christ our Savior has been exalted by his Father to be Lord over all. He's Lord, he's King over everything that you can think of. And i tell you why I like to think about that. The kingship of Christ, that he is Lord over everything that you can think of. It's because if the Lord Jesus Christ is not king of all, if he's not Lord over everything, then we have no gospel to preach. We have no reason to, to hope in Christ or to believe in Christ, to cast our soul upon him. But if the Father has raised up his Son to be king over all, then we have a gospel to preach. We have good news to tell. And we have a sure hope of salvation. Our hope of salvation is not a wish. It's an expectation of glory. It's something that must happen since Christ is raised to be king over all. Since the Lord Jesus Christ is king over all, there's peace and there's comfort and there's assurance to preach to the hearts of God's people. I reckon if Christ wasn't king over all, what would we have to preach? Nothing. I mean, nothing of any value. I guess we'd have to, to preach the law. Beat, beat God's people up, beat people up you know, with the law. There's no enjoyment in that. There's no comfort and peace in that. But there's comfort and there's peace and there's assurance. If Christ the Savior is king over all. And that's what I pray the Spirit will enable me to do this morning. Now before we look at the exaltation of Christ, we have to see why is it that Christ is exalted to be king? There's a reason. Why did the Father exalt his Son to be king over all? Well, now it's not nepotism. If you've ever worked in a, in a family-owned business, you understand this concept of nepotism. But that's not what's going on here between the Father and the Son. The Father did not exalt his Son to be king over all just because he's family. The father did not exalt his son to be king over all, even though there's more qualified candidates who are not family. The father exalted the son because there's no one else qualified to have the position. That's why. The Lord Jesus Christ earned the right to be glorified. He earned the right to sit on the throne of glory because of his humiliation and his suffering and death for his people. The Lord met those two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. This is what he told them. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now you notice there, there's an order there. First Christ had to suffer these things. And because he did, he earned the right to enter into his glory and to be exalted over all. So first I want to look at how the Savior suffered in his humiliation. Christ had to suffer all these things in order to redeem his people. He had to suffer all these things to earn the right to be exalted over all. Number one, Christ suffered 
the humiliation of appearing in human flesh. Verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Now it was not robbing God of his glory for the Lord Jesus, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, to say, I and my father are one. I'm equal with the father. Before Abraham was, I am. He took to him the name of God, I am. It wasn't wrong for him to say that because it's true. The Lord Jesus Christ is God. He's not a lesser version of God. He is the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. That's who he is. He's God. And yet this high and lofty one, God himself, the the light and prince and glory of heaven, humbled himself to become flesh so that he could be the representative of his elect people who are in the flesh. The eternal God humbled himself to become an embryo in Mary's womb and to be born from the womb of of one of his creatures. He did that because that's how we come into the world. He's he's our representative. He's got to do it just like we do it. He limited himself to the weakness of human flesh. He got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. The weakness of human flesh. Because that's how we are. That's the nature of his people. And he's representing us. He had the power to do anything. And he did over and over again, didn't he? He healed the sick. He created food. He broke the bread. And just created enough food for 5,000. And But he never one time performed a miracle to benefit his own flesh. Not one time ever. When he was thirsty, he couldn't create water. He had to ask a sinful woman to give him a drink. When he was hungry, he couldn't turn the stones to bread. Because you and I can't do that. And he's our representative. He had to limit himself to the weakness of our flesh to be the representative of his people so that he could make them the righteousness of God in him. You know, all of us have done something that uh, we should be embarrassed about. We should be humbled about. And you know what that feels like. Just what a, what a horrible feeling, you know, to endure. Christ, our Savior, endured a constant feeling of humility and embarrassment, I guess is a good word, at a shame, at appearing in the weakness of our flesh. But he did it. He did it. He suffered that humiliation to be the representative and savior of his people. The second, Christ suffered the humiliation of obedience. Verse 8 said, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now the Lord and master of all humbled himself to be a servant. Remember when he washed his disciples' feet? He said, you call me Lord and Master. And you say, well, for so I am. But now you see what I've done? He performed the task of the lowest servant. He became a servant, first of all, to his father. Now the son's equal with the father. He is the father. He's one with the father. Yet he gave up his rights as God to be a servant to his father. To do what his father required to save his people from their sins. He came. To serve his father by obeying the law. Honoring the law. Magnifying it by keeping it perfectly. And establishing a righteousness in the earth. 
What's even more humiliating, I mean, you know, maybe you think it's not all that humiliating to be the servant of the Father, God the Father. But the Lord and Master humbled himself to be the servant of his people. He came not to be ministered to, but to minister by giving his life a ransom for many. And it was his delight to do it. He came to do for his people what they could never do for themselves as a servant, doing for them what they needed done. And it was his delight to do it, his delight to become their servant because he loved his people. The Lord Jesus Christ is the lawgiver. The one who appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai with his finger wrote the Ten Commandments and those two tables of stones. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the lawgiver. He's the judge of all. Yet he humbled himself to come in the flesh and be under his own law. You know, kings make laws for their kingdom, but now the king's exempt. He can do what he wants. He's not under the law. This king was. He put himself under his own law to obey his own law. He was already righteous. He's already holy. That's his very nature. But he took on him flesh to obey the law as the representative of his people to give them an obedience to his law that they could never produce. The eternal father became a babe of days, completely dependent on his parents. His his mother, his stepfather, foster father, whatever you call him, got their life and breath from him, yet that baby was completely dependent on them. His, his, uh, his mother was a sinful woman. Yet he obeyed her. She's his creature. He made her. Yet he humbled himself to obey her. Even when she was wrong, he obeyed her. He was obedient to the law and the ceremonies. Circumcised the eighth day. He kept every ceremony. Every Passover. Every feast of the tabernacle. Every, every, all these, all the, can you imagine how that grated on his soul? <laughs> Keeping these ceremonies that the that the the priests of the day had so polluted and, and so corrupted. He kept them anyway. He submitted himself anyway. He was perfectly obedient to a sinful people. And then his obedience went even further and even deeper. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Even the death of the cross. Son of God was, was the perfectly obedient servant, his father. His father said, son, you must be made sin. You must take the sin of my people, take it into your own body on the tree, and you must suffer and die to put away the sin of my people. Because that's the only way my justice can be satisfied. It's the only way my holiness can be satisfied. It's the only way they can truly be cleansed of their sin. And the son obediently gave himself to be sacrificed. We looked at that a little bit ago in Matthew, didn't we? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But if not, thy will be done. I'll drink it dry. If it can't pass from me except I drink it, I'll drink it. He was obedient to his father, even the death of the cross. Here's why that's, that's so critical, the death of the cross, because it's a cursed death. 
It's a curse. He died a cursed death. He died a curse for his people to deliver them from the curse of the law. He humbled himself to take on him flesh, to take on a body that could die. God can't die, but a man can. So God became a man to die as the substitute, as the sacrifice for his people. He humbled himself to live in a holy body. The father had the father prepared that body for him. He lived in it. Never committed one sin. Yet that body was broken and bruised as the sacrifice for his people. He he did that willingly. He took on the curse of his people. He died being made a curse. He died being made sin for his people. So he take their sin away from them. And he put that, their sin away by his blood in justice. He suffered everything the sin of his people deserved in his body on the tree. He did that willingly. It's not just the, the pain that that caused him, but the humiliation. Not just even the humiliation before men, before his creatures. The humiliation of being stripped naked before his father. Being stripped naked, being, being emptied of righteousness and holiness and just emptying himself to put away the sin of his people. All the humiliation of that. But he suffered it willingly because it was his heart's desire to glorify and honor his father. Father, the hour's come. Now, I've glorified thee on the earth. Glorify me now that I might glorify thee. That I might save your people from their sin. He suffered all that willingly to honor and glorify his father. And to save those people, the father gave him an eternity to save. It was his delight to save them. He suffered that willingly and accomplished their salvation. All right, that's his humiliation. Now let's look at the exaltation of Christ. Verse 9 says, wherefore. God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Now wherefore, because his humiliation and his suffering completely satisfied his father, because his death completely satisfied justice, because he did absolutely everything that the father gave him to do, he pleased the father so perfectly in his life of humiliation. Wherefore, because he did that, the father is exalted exalted him to the throne of glory and given him a name that's above every name. See, this wasn't nepotism at all, wasn't it? It wasn't something that the father just given something you know, to his family even though they don't really deserve it. The humiliation and suffering of Christ earned him the right to sit on the throne of glory. It earned him the right to be given a name which is above every name. Christ earned his kingship by his suffering and his death for his people. Now the exaltation of Christ is just the exact opposite of his humiliation. He suffered this humiliation when he was made sin for his people. He's exalted to the throne of glory because he put that sin away. Because he satisfied his father and put that sin away. He paid the debt with his own precious blood. He was made low. Oh, how he was brought low by sin, wasn't he? There at the cross, separated from his father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cried, I thirst. 
Not really because he was as thirsty for water. Thirsty for righteousness. He'd been made sin. I thirst. Oh, how he was brought low. Well, now he's exalted higher than the heavens because he put all that sin away. Now, wherefore? Here's some results of Christ's humil- of Christ's exaltation. Wherefore? Number one. The humiliation and sufferings of Christ earned him a name which is above every name. Now, this is not just that his name is famous. The sufferings of Christ earned him a name that's a saving name. A name that is so powerful, it saves everyone who believes on him. Everyone who believes on his matchless name. Peter said in Acts 4 verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If you believe on this name, you must be saved. And his name describes who he is. He's the Savior of sinners. (laughs) The Lord Jesus Christ earned a saving name. Second, Christ is king over all of God's creation. Because of his suffering, the Father has exalted him to be king over everything, over things in heaven Things in earth and things under the earth. Well, that's everywhere, isn't it? <laughs> Can you think of anything that's not in the heavens, in the earth, or under the earth? That's everything. That covers it all. Christ is king everywhere in God's creation. Now, since Christ is king everywhere, there can never be any place God's sheep could go where they'll perish. There's never a place God's sheep can go where they're out of the jurisdiction of King Jesus. Never. They're always in his realm, in his power to save them. There's not one of God's people can be so lost that they're outside of the power of the king to save them. He he is king everywhere. And that guarantees he'll save his people from everywhere, no matter where they're found. Number three... There's salvation to be found for sinners at the feet of King Jesus. Look at verse 10. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's salvation at bowing at the feet of the sovereign. There's no salvation in accepting Jesus as your personal Savior. There's no salvation in in, uh, letting Jesus be your friend and letting him into your heart. There's no salvation in letting Jesus have his way in your life. If you 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 got to let him have his way, what good is he? There's no salvation in giving your cold, dead, sinful heart to Jesus. There's salvation in bowing at the feet of King Jesus. When we bow before the king, this is what we're recognizing. He does not have to save me. Now I'm going to come begging him for mercy, but he doesn't have to save me. He doesn't owe me anything but wrath for my sin. He doesn't owe me anything but wrath. The question is not what will I do with Jesus. The question is what will he do with me? What's the Lord going to do with me salvation is bowing at the feet of the king and saying like that leper of old 
Lord, if you will, if you, my will's going to do it. If you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, you can save me. Lord, if you will, you can wash my sin away. Lord, if you will, you can cleanse me in your blood. Lord, if you will, you can give me life. Lord, if you will, you can save me. I'm in your hands to do with as you please. And if you damn me, you'll be just in doing it. I can't argue against you at all. If you damn me, you'll be absolutely just in, in, in damning me. That's the very reason I'm begging you for mercy. I'm begging you for mercy. If you give me mercy for Christ's sake, if you give me mercy based on the humiliation and the suffering and the death and the blood of Christ, you'll be just and show me mercy. Now, if God damns me for my sin, he's just. If he shows me mercy for Christ's sake, he's just. See, either way, God's going to be just, isn't he? Now, there's, there's no salvation anywhere else. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stay defeated of the king. And I'm going to keep begging him for mercy. I mean, I'm just not going anywhere else. He's the king. You know, the Lord Jesus was rejected as king, wasn't he? They mocked him as king. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a little old reed in his hand for a scepter. They found some old purple carpet. I mean, it wasn't somebody's robe or something, somebody nice. It was some dirty old carpet, you know, purple. They threw it on his back. And they mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. Look at it. They rode over his cross. The accusation, not just his name, not just who he wrote. This is his accusation. He's king. They rejected him. They mocked him. They crucified him as king. But if you and me are going to find any salvation, tell you what, we're going to bow to the king. It's his to give. He earned it by his humiliation, his suffering, his death. And he earned the right to sovereignly give salvation to whom he will. Number four. Sinners see the glory of God when we see this is how God saves sinners. It's through the suffering, the death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of God's Son. Verse 10 says that Christ did this to glorify the Father. Or verse 9. Let's see, wait a minute. Verse 11, um, to the glory of God the Father. That's why he did all this, to the glory of God the Father. God's greatest glory is saving sinners, giving mercy to sinners through the slaughter of his son. That's God's greatest glory. Now the Father is not going to let his glory be tarnished. If he would lose just one of that innumerable host, and there's innumerable hosts. It's a host that's so big, you and me can't count them. If one was missing, we wouldn't notice because we can't count that anyway. God would notice because justice would notice. He's not going to let his glory be tarnished by losing even one for whom Christ died. Not one. You see, the death of Christ satisfied God's justice. He's going to see his justice satisfied. Well, since Christ died, he put away the sin of his people. God's going to see his mercy is satisfied too. God's going to see his mercy is satisfied. Not one of his elect can perish. God's going to see to it his mercy is satisfied so his glory is not tarnished. Now, 
I hope you're loving this subject like the kingship of Christ. It's impossible to preach the gospel without preaching the kingship of Christ. It's utterly impossible. You cannot preach the gospel unless you're preaching a sovereign savior. If you're preaching a savior that wants to and can't, you're using the name Jesus, you're using the name God, you're using terms like mercy and grace and redemption and righteousness and peace and sanctification, but you're not preaching the gospel. If you're not preaching a sovereign savior, Christ the sovereign did not die to give everybody a chance to be saved now. Some of them go to hell anyway, but you know, I, I, I mean, I tried, I did my best. No, sir, that's not the God of this Bible. The sovereign Savior saved everyone for whom he died. He saved everybody he intended to save, and he cannot fail to save them because he's the sovereign. Since he's the sovereign, his will is always done. His will is to save his people from their sin. That's what he did. That's what he did. And he reigns as king to ensure it. To ensure it. And in closing, I want to give you a few scriptures here that show us how there's salvation and there's peace and there's comfort and there's assurance for the hearts of God's people resting in this fact our Savior reigns over all. We're not going to turn to all these scriptures for time's sake. I'll just read them to you. We'll turn to one or two of them, but um, you just jot them down if you want because there's not time to, to turn to them all. But first, this first scripture, Psalm 68, verse 18. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Now, if Christ is not exalted, if he died, but he is not raised, he's not exalted, then all of us are still held captive by sin and death and hell. But since Christ is exalted, he's led captivity captive. And God's people are free from sin and death and hell. We're free in Christ because he's exalted. Now I want you to turn to this one, Isaiah chapter 53. Since Christ died and he's now exalted, the salvation of God's elect is sure and certain. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased him to, to bruise and sacrifice his son because he made him sin for his people. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. That's mighty sure, isn't it? <laughs> There's no room for doubt left. All right, next, John 16, verse 7. The Lord says, don't turn, let me read it to you. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away. Can you imagine how disappointed the disciples were to hear that? It's expedient for you. It's necessary. It's best for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come. But if I depart, I'll send him to you. See, if Christ is not exalted, there's no comforter to sin, is there? There's no peace to bring. But since Christ is exalted, he sends the comforter to his people. And how does the Holy Spirit comfort the hearts of God's people? By showing them Christ. He's crucified, he's risen, and he's exalted. He's king over all. You're safe in his hand.
All right, now turn to this one, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried. His sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which you now um, see and hear. If Christ is not raised and exalted, God can't keep his promise. David prophesied how many years before it happened that Christ would be crucified, he'd be raised, he'd be exalted to sit on the throne of Fred. David prophesied that would happen. Well, if Christ is not raised, if he's not exalted, God can't keep his word. Well, Christ is raised. Christ is exalted. And even though you may not understand it, you may not understand how it can possibly be so, you can trust your soul to every word of this book. God won't let one word of it fall to the ground. He'll keep his word. And the message of the whole book is there's redemption in Christ Jesus. Now you trust him, you'll have redemption. That's the message of the whole book. You can count on this book and you're just not going to be saved until you believe in this risen, exalted Savior who's king over all. These men... Heard them preaching this day, didn't they? This this is the king. You killed him. The father raised him, put him on the throne. What was their reaction to it? Well, let's find out. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified. You rejected him. You hated him. God's made him both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what are we going to do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort. He kept preaching Christ to them saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And that same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Here these people were here at the, at the cross. These were some of the people crying, Crucify him and give us Barabbas. <laughs> and they bowed at the feet of the king. And they believed him. And they were saved. Then in Acts 5, verse 30, God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. 
Now, here's the reason God did all this, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Now, since Christ is exalted, God forgives the sin of his people. Here's how you know the Father accepted the sacrifice of Christ. He exalted him. If If he didn't do what he came to do, if he didn't put away the sin of the people the Father gave him to save, the Father wouldn't exalted him. He left him in the tomb. But he raised him from the tomb. He exalted him to glory as the proof, as the evidence. His death satisfied the Father. Satisfied the Father. Satisfied his justice against all the sin of all of his people. Since Christ is exalted, he's going to grant every one of his people repentance. To turn to Christ and to trust him. And he's going to grant every last one of them the forgiveness of their sin. Your sin is forgiven in the blood of Christ. If you believe Christ, now if you're God's people, your sin is forgiven. God's forgiven it so he does not remember it anymore. That's how powerful the blood of Christ is. And the proof I'm telling you the truth is the Father exalted him to sit on the throne of glory. Then in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to them also that love his appearing. Now, if Christ is not exalted, if he's not exalted as king, if he's not exalted as judge of all, he has no righteousness to give his people. He can't, this crown of righteousness is not a crown you're wearing. Yeah, it's a covering of righteousness. It's being made righteous through and through. But Christ is exalted. So there is a crown, a covering of righteousness for him to give his people and make us accepted with the Father. Then Hebrews 1 verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sin, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now if Christ is not exalted, he hasn't put away the sin of anybody. But he is exalted. He's exalted to sit upon the throne of heaven. The father honored him saying, sit here on my right hand. I'll make your enemies your footstool. He is exalted. Well, then we know he purged the sin of his people. He purged the sin of everybody the father gave him to save. And if our sin is purged, we can never be damned. See, it's important Christ be exalted, isn't it? Then last, Hebrews 9 verse 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. If Christ is not exalted in the heavens, we have no mediator with the Father. We can, our prayers can never be heard. Our sins can never be forgiven. Nobody is being a mediator with us for the Father if Christ is not exalted. But Christ is risen. And he is exalted. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. Then we do have a mediator. And that mediator is sitting beside his Father pleading his blood as the acceptance, with uh, our acceptance with the Father. He's pleading his blood as the forgiveness of the sin of his people. And you know, we say that, and he's pleading. Our mediator is pleading for us. Well, you know, he's not begging his Father. He's not asking his father for a favor. He's actually not saying a word. He's sitting there beside his father, 
with the evidence of his humiliation, with the evidence of his sacrifice. The lamb slain, a lamb as it had been slain. That's what John said he saw him. A lamb as he had been slain. He saw those scars in his hand, in his feet, in his head, and in his side. And the father sees those scars. He said, that sacrifice is enough. My people are forgiven. My people are accepted. Let them come boldly before my throne of grace. That they find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Because of our mediator. We can come in the name of our mediator. And be heard by God Almighty. The enormity of that escapes us. (laughs) Because we just think I, I ought to be heard. You know, I ought to get to speak whenever I want. I ought to be heard. The only way we can come before the Father, accepted and heard, is through a mediator. We have no mediator. Christ is not exalted. But thank God he is. Thank God he is. Now that's comfort. That's assurance for God's people in it. Our Savior is exalted. He's king over all. And boy, I'm thankful. Boy, I'm thankful. I hope you are too. Hope this gives you such peace of heart and confidence and that you just rest in Christ. All right, let's bow together. Our Father, oh, how we thank you for Christ our Savior. How we thank you for his humiliation. How we thank you how he suffered and died to put away our sin. Father, how thankful we are. And how thankful we are his sacrifice satisfied your justice. Put away the sin of his people so that you exalted him on high to be king over all. How thrilled we are to know our Savior reigns. Our mediator is always heard. Father, how we thank you. And Father, I pray you'd take the message, the message of Christ as it's been preached, that you enable your people to forget about the stammering lips that preached it and cause the message of Christ to come into our hearts to give us comfort and assurance and faith in him that we'd cast our all upon him. For it's in his precious name, his glory, we pray. Amen. All right, Sean.